Welcome to Nell and Matt's Obsolete Movies, the podcast where we revisit movies from our 20 plus years of collecting films on obsolete formats and non-obsolete formats. I guess we do have DVDs in this house, people. I guess. <laughs> and Blu-ray. 40 f- and Blu-ray. And we stream. And we stream. 44 episodes in, we should probably make that clear. That we, do, <laughs> that we don't just watch movies on CED, Laserdisc, and VHS <laughs> and Betamax. We do we do watch films the modern way even. You know, we have a we have a Roku, we have Fire Sticks, Chromecast, all of it. All of it. We have a bunch of streaming <clears throat> services. Yes. So but for this podcast, we use physical media because physical media is so fun. And yeah, and you can think of, and it's a retro podcast in a way too. Because you can also think of this podcast as being about films from the VHS era. They're not necessarily always on VHS. Yes. And our film for this episode is Working Girl from 1988. And we have it on VHS getting it from... Um, I actually think it. I owned it. I think it's my sister's. I think it came from my house in Glen Olden. Ah, okay. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah, Good yeah, to know. A, yes, it was an important film to my sister and I. So I'm, I'm pretty sure I snuck it with me and, and took it. Yes. And it's also, your sister wouldn't have, probably doesn't even have DVDs anymore. No. <laughs> one of those people who just, you know, yeah. you plug a thing in, it's got all the movies on it. Yeah. We don't need stuff. <laughs> so you saved this yes. VHS tape probably from a landfill and being dug up 10,000 years from now. This is true. Or at least a different landfill. Who knows where this tape's going. Plastic is forever, people, and so you might as well hold on to VHS tapes until they get mold in them. <laughs> and so, anyway, uh, yeah. So, Working Girl at a time. I mean, it was a beloved film of the time. Yes. Six Oscar nominations. Yeah. Uh, Robert Roger Ebert, Gene Salat, and the New York Times all loved it. You know, yeah. it's got a very high Metacritic store score even to this day. Beloved, beloved film. And we watched it. Well, I guess we should do the pre- brief plot summary if you haven't watched it from 1988, sure. which we could best describe as Melanie Griffith plays a very working class New York secretary who's very driven, went to night school for five years, got her degree, and is trying to knock on the door to sort of having, you know, going from secretary to sort of like account rep. Yeah making deals business person and encounters i think not only a glass ceiling but a class ceiling yes and also her working classness in terms of fashion and hair hair and accent and and jewelry and all of it um is an obstacle and so she proceeds How do you even describe it? I'm trying try to <laughs> she, describe She comes up... So, she's struggled with different jobs. She uh, ends up becoming the secretary for uh, Sigourney Weaver's Catherine Parker. And she pitches an idea to Sigourney Weaver, and Sigourney Weaver steals the idea. But, just so convenient, Sigourney Weaver breaks her f- foot skiing yeah. and is stuck somewhere for weeks on end. Yes. And so the Melanie Griffith character just kind of usurps her place and, you know, at the same time her relationship with Alec Baldwin 
fails terribly yeah. or is spectacular, so she needs a place to stay. So she basically moves into the Scorny Weaver character's apartment and her office and her wardrobe and makes looks to make a major multi-million dollar acquisition deal. Yeah. And does so with Harrison Ford, who is like a business partner, and they fall in love, and then... This is where the film gets weird for me, or this is where I find, I like, oh, okay. They're falling in love. You find out that Sigourney Weaver is the other woman that Harrison Ford was dating, and he's like, it's over. We just haven't made it official yet. But then she's back, and then her boss, and then there's this wacky, yeah. and there's elevators, and you pull the big guy off the elevator and give him the pitch, and then he gets on the elevator right. and says, you're my person, you're forever, you know, and gets rid of Sigourney <laughs> Weaver, and then they fall in love and live happily ever after, and <laughs> this mega corporation gets a little bit bigger by owning a chain of southern radio stations. Yes, yes. And so... Um the the romance you know just feels not needed or the romantic triangle uh but the melanie griffith's character is tess and Catherine asked tess to go to her townhouse and make to let the cleaners in and all this other stuff and she discovers that sigourney weaver is going to pitch her idea to to harrison force character jack and um specifically says don't take this through Tess and so she realizes that Scorny Weaver's character is is stolen her idea and is going yes. to use it and that inspires her to, to kind of turn the tables and see if she can pitch the idea to Jack and take it all the way which she does but unfortunately uh, Sigourney Weaver's character Catherine figures out the ruse and tries to push Tess out, but in the end, everything works out, and Tess, Tess wins uh, wins the situation. Yeah, yeah, which is, I mean, I, I'm sure it is definitely part of the appeal of the film. Yeah. If you don't care about a business deal, you care about whether these people fall in love. Yeah. Like any rom-com, there's, you know, the, the delightful misunderstanding scene, you know. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so, like, you know, I feel that they there was this need to shoehorn in the romantic triangle, because did people really want to talk about parody and, and equity and ha women being able to have this? No, it definitely needed a vehicle. And, right. And the other thing is... It's like a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine goes down, right? Yes. Yeah. And so our turn for sort of revisiting the movie in the 2020s, the thing I thought about a lot, the opening sequence of the film... Yeah. Both times there is this aerial shot, one that is zooming in from the Statue of Liberty to Lower Manhattan and, yes, the World Trade Center, yeah. the Twin Towers. And this sort of inspiring, you know, it was four years after Morning in America, but this very much Morning in America, we have this new economy and this new possibility. And as much as also it works on these issues of class and how do you get, you know, and at one point she's like, there is this, you know, sort of young leaders, young executives training that she's trying to get into the hunter program. And she can't, she always gets passed over. And at one point, one her friends in sort of the secretary pool are like, yeah, you know, what are you going to do? These people come out of Wharton and Harvard and you went to night school. Yeah. 
you know, <laughs> like that there's still this. And so it, it, it really distinguishes and plays into the idea of class, but then the message of the film also is, that, but, 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 but you can make it work for you. Yeah. And the zoom out at the end where Melanie Griffith does get her foot in the door and is suddenly now Tess is the boss and has a secretary. Has an office. And has an office with a window. Yeah. Treats the secretary with dignity and respect. Yeah. And kindness like she would have wanted to be treated in that position. And then the camera zooms back out. And I believe it is World Trade Center 7. Yeah. Is the building. Yeah. Which is also, you know, you think something that only existed for 13 years after the movie. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the you go back and you zoom out and it's still morning in America and it's Manhattan and it's that power and prestige of the American economy. Yeah. And she made it work for her, so it's okay. So in a weird way, it's almost like the idea of the Reagan era and the Reagan economy gets redeemed in a, in a strange way, too. Yeah. As we are in the 2020s thinking about, I think, a lot of our younger friends who, like the Tess character, don't see how they can jump yeah. into that stream and are worried about what that stream is doing to the world anyway. And, yeah, and so that's that's also very interesting to me. Well, you know what the funny thing is, like she even at the end of the film doesn't believe she can still make that jump. So when yes. she arrives at Trask with her new position, she sits at the secretary's desk because he says it's an entry level position. You have to start at the bottom, and she just assumes she has to start as a secretary again. Which is also fascinating. And so yeah. you, you find out that um, the person who was in the office when she arrives is Tessa's secretary using her office and her phone at that particular time. So even for her, there's a, still this moment of like, oh, do I deserve... This? Have I actually made it even yeah. though I work so hard and... Yeah, you know... Save the company. So... I, I, you know, as we were watching the movie, I looked up and uh, Pew, it didn't go, I couldn't find one earlier than 1999, but at 1990, I'm sorry, 1995, only 0% zero, 0 of CEO, CEOs were film, female. And it's just now in 2020 that it's 7%. Yeah. And so at one point it was four tenths of a percent, not even a 4% yeah. was four tenths of a percent. And there was actually um, a... a uh, LinkedIn actually did an article about this fear of cause of COVID of many women losing their positions and their mo momentum forward because of, you know, maybe having to go back home, working from yeah. home and, and, you know, all this. And they actually referenced an article from 1989 from the Harvard Business Review trying to convince companies to invest in women. And to have women in leadership roles. So I think it's like, there's still a lot, a lot that needs to be done, especially for women of color. Yes. Um, but like, there's still a lot to be done around women being able to have leadership roles in companies and nonprofit yes. organizations. And, and academia. So, and academia. And so, you know... This film in 1989, and you're right, like that it was supposed, it was the 80s, right? And it was Reaganomics, and everyone was supposed to be able to pull themselves up from the bootstraps. Yes. And that was and, very apparent even then. Only certain people got right were able to pull themselves up. 
So my favorite part of the movie, well, which is actually the most depressing part of the movie, is her the beginning of the film, where she is working for two stock stockbrokers. They treat her poorly. They set her up um, supposedly to meet with someone about a new position, but it's actually the guy's trying to sleep with her, and it's actually played by Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey playing a creep and uh, someone who's sexually exploitative. Yes, who knew? Who, who knew? knew? Um, he was playing the type. Uh, and so just her struggle of trying to be recognized as competent. And even today, yeah, as we know, like if you have a, a degree from Harvard as opposed to, say, Penn State. Yes, and you could be a legacy at Harvard, Heard. not a... Mm, yeah. yeah. Uh, it which still I, makes a difference, It right? still makes a difference, and I know certainly in both of the universities I'm currently affiliated in, yeah. it seems like, uh, you know, being a dude who you'd want to, who someone in a position of power would want to watch a college basketball game with... Yeah really, really helps your chances at a leadership position and an executive or a high-level position. Yeah. Um, One of the places seems to really like to hire ex-military men. Yeah. (laughs) That's like, these are the the people who translate to academia very well. Yeah. And they don't. Uh, You know what I mean? And and that... That almost, you know... I'm doing a research project and there's this idea of sort of racial grammar Mm. that, you know, there's ways that we can talk theoretically about the world, but we really learn grammar through talking Mm -hmm. and, and you can have schooling in, this is how the world should be, but there's, and Eduardo Benito, Benito Silva, uh, is the scholar who comes up with racial grammar that this idea that there's this, this way that people interact in this way that we expect things to be normal and we expect certain people to be normal in certain positions and have certain circumstances that as much as we can theorize it, we still can't get away from it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's still very much there. That said, I still fell for this movie and this was, I'm pretty <laughs> sure the first time I've seen this movie. Really? Yes. Yeah, I, It was on HBO like all the time. So yeah, but you know, it was like adults talking about adult things. Like when that movie, like I saw, I would have been eleven when this movie came out. Yeah, it would have been eleven, uh, twelve or thirteen when the hot rotation. Yeah, it would have been on HBO. And for me, it was, it was adults talking about business or something. I think I once caught you know one part of one scene seemed deja vu, but. Yeah. But I fell for this movie. But you should talk about your history with this movie. Yeah, and, no. Because and, and, uh, you have a history with I this do movie have a history with That's movies. more than two hours old. <laughs> this is true. This is true. So um, I'm I'm the youngest in my family, and so my siblings are like seven, eight years older than me. So there's, um, I was often introduced to stuff maybe a little bit young um, and wasn't necessarily fully ready for it. But my sister really adored this film. I remember watching this with her multiple times and it has become a favorite of mine. Uh, but you know, I grew up in a working class area, very much like Staten Island. And I so love this test character that she was able to come from this working class neighborhood. She was able to get her education. She was able to, she's super smart, even though she doesn't know how to navigate the system, which is fascinating, right? So she doesn't know 
really, though she'll see people around her, she doesn't really know what the look is. She doesn't really know what the talk is. She doesn't really get the the hairstyle that you should have. Like, she just doesn't get it, but she's super smart. Like, and so I love that part about it. And so for me, growing up where I grew up and that hope that I can move beyond my working class neighborhood, be a professional, seeing this movie was inspiring. And it was yeah. exciting to see that, that possibility. Uh, and that she just kind of was able, that she worked hard to get what she, what she needed and to make it happen. Um, so there's definitely, you know, I think someone quoted a Cinderella-esque kind of yeah, it's on the box approach to it. But I really loved it, and I didn't care about the romantic side of it. I didn't care about the that she as, gets Harrison and that Ford. she gets Harrison Ford. I really didn't care about that. I cared that she was able to use like her own intelligence and to move forward with her career, and just had a fight in her around it. And you know, at one point, she it's her thirtieth birthday. And that it did feel like a death knell at one point in time. Like if you were a woman at 30 and you hadn't gotten your career, were you going to have yeah. a career? Um, but that's why I loved it. It was just that kind of hopefulness that, oh, she did it. Is it a possibility to do it? And is it a possibility to have your own office? And, you know, my sister, when she got her first executive position and got her own office called me and she's like guess where I am you know and so it was like a big <laughs> a big joke um I did it when I got my first office I I sent her a photo and was like look look where I'm at you know we were just very really excited about it so I think there for both of us for both of us that thought of um where we lived and you know my dad was a truck driver my mom taught at a catholic school and, and we both went to a Catholic high school where it was like your choices were to be a nun, a teacher, or a mom. Like, that's all. Like, when you met with the guidance counselor who was a nun, she was like, yeah, these are your three career choices. What do you feel? And my sister, who is still in international business, wanted to be in international business. I remember she told me when she went to see sister to talk about the school she was interested in, the career path. And sister said to her, like, why would you want to do that? Why, why international business? That would take you away from your children. Why would you ever want to do something like that, you know? And so that was, like, very much the mindset that we grew up in. In our neighborhood that we grew up in, also most people bought a house around the corner from their parents and kind of married the guy you went to high school with. And that was kind of what life was. Yeah. So, though there is kind of some problems with this film, I did really appreciate it. And also, yeah. I try to be good about it, but I do have... I have a Philly accent, right? So I do have mm. those moments where I'll say, talking. you talking to me, like, what? what is your deal? Like, what's your issue? And that sounds super unprofessional. When I was a teacher, I would do it for my students as a joke because they thought it was hysterical when I would use my Philadelphia accent. They yeah. thought it was really, really funny. Um, but that kind of just... Con I connected with this film. And so I've seen this film a ton of times yeah. and absolutely adore it. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, you know, there's these two worlds that she lives in. The yeah. Alec Baldwin male character who's very working class, who there's this great scene at the birthday party where, you know, his gift to her was a negligee yeah. and his garter belts and all those things, you know. And it's like, she says, you know, why not something I could wear outside of this apartment? Yeah. You know, these are nice, but stuff I could wear outside of this apartment. And you realize that, yeah part of her 
where she is in in the world of class and stuff is her body is the the asset. Yeah. Or at least in the eyes of other people, they can't imagine her as anything else. Right. Which is, I think, a really interesting, yeah, feminist statement. Yeah. In terms of... Yeah, and there's the famous line when she's... um, She meets Harrison Ford. Well, she's purposely trying to meet Harrison uh, Ford's character at a cocktail party kind of thing. And um, Jack, I believe his name is. And so she wears this very attractive dress but most women are in business suits at this event Mm. and he comes up to her and they're talking and she says i have a head for business and a bod for sin which is like one of the most famous quotes from Mm. that movie um and that yeah like because she's attractive because she looks the way she looks people just assume that she's not she's not very smart um but she is a very smart person yeah and also, I think, you know, the other thing, going back to, like, sort of where you grew up, I mean, Delaware County, Pennsylvania, has working class places like Glen Alden, and it also has the main line. And right. you have this, again, very strong distinction between who's successful and who belongs and who yeah. has and who doesn't. Yeah, which... I mean, I, I remember growing up, um, and I think this is something also for us, important to, for us to talk about, but I remember growing up and I had... Um, aspirations i actually did really well in high school i'll have a nerd moment i i graduated sixth in my class from high school had amazing sat scores and so i was applying to some top tier universities and i applied to swathmore which was kind of if you lived in glen olden was like oh swathmore and i applied to swathmore and i went for my interview and it kind of like rubbed me the wrong way Mm. And though uh, I ideologically believed in what they were saying, uh, the questions they were asking me, it was like I felt like if I didn't answer it. In terms of the, the, the having the right politics and having the right. Right, yeah. you weren't going to get in. And I remember talking to a neighbor about it and her just saying to me, well, I just. Oh, who went to Swarthmore? Who went to Swarthmore and just said, oh, I don't think you're Swarthmore material. And that, I was just like, whoa, like that was. I was like, wow, that really kind of hurt me, right? Like, yeah. not sophomore material with it. I ultimately did not apply to sophomore. Um, but, you know, the, this plays out in the film. Like, if you don't necessarily have the right education. And um, so Catherine Sigourney Weaver's character went to Wesley, right? Um, the person makes that comment like, oh, some people have gone to Harvard and now, like, how do you compete going to, to night school? Yeah. And so that kind of class that even for us, like, we don't know, ne- we didn't necessarily know how to navigate that. Like, yeah. in terms of you being a college professor, which it's worked, you're a college professor, but yeah, you've kind of been the same boat where you've been comp- competing with people who've gone to really prestigious universities for, a, you know... A hopeful job as a as yeah, a and you know having to sort of work my way up and yeah. and being competent, which in some cases yeah wasn't enough yeah because I went to IUP, I went to the state school and yeah just being really good in the classroom wasn't enough right <laughs> you exactly know, exactly you know um, which is frustrating and is very much a very American I mean again there's that way that this movie 
talks about is bootstraps and a celebration of gumption and if you're yeah. just smart enough you'll it'll eventually work out or you'll get the big break right which is a nice thing to believe but again we know right we know that that's not true and we know plenty of folks for whom that hasn't been right. true and who are who are definitely smart and talented they just don't have the right degree Right? Yeah, and the right, they didn't or the degree at all, the or at all. I mean, I even think about my as a professor, my top ten list of the smartest students I've ever had. About five of them never graduated. Yeah, no, the most true. brilliant student I've ever had grad uh, flunked out of a conditionally uh, a summer program for conditionally accepted students. You know, we had we had a friend, um, you know, who I'm sure. You know, we were in the same way. Like, absolutely brilliant. Like, such a smart guy. So, so smart. And just, like, life circumstances and other reasons wasn't able to finish. Family being able to pay for. for yeah. yeah. And he, smart, smart, still a really smart person and just wasn't able to finish. And, and has had a good life. Yeah. But I think there's that way, again, as much as this movie is about I guess that's the thing. In Ronald Reagan's America, it's 1988. It's morning in America. We're yeah. beating the communists. The Berlin Wall hasn't fallen yet, but we're feeling really good about yeah. it. Celebrates that the system can work. I think for me, that's the other thing, is watching this movie in the 2020s, and you think after 2008, when even the industry that Tess worked in, you know, she, you know, was one of those companies... Bear Stearns, you know, it's like Lower Manhattan was devastated by 9-11 and then 2008, yeah. the financial crisis, yeah. where all of that speculative capitalism, that mergers and acquisitions, those sort of, um, you know, <clears throat> the companies like that, you know, buy, buy successful businesses and run them into the ground, basically, right. Right. you know, um, that kind of thing, it does feel a little different. Yeah. And we say this as people who both have leadership positions in our professions and have yeah. and have had and been able to make it work and have certainly, you know, not rich, but have comfort right. in our lives. Yeah. Um, and having plenty of friends who don't have that and you realize that, you know, there's not that much difference. No, yeah. Absolutely. And so that's for me is the little twinge. There's that twinge, and again, there's the wacky farcical when you get to the love triangle, yeah. and when you get to the big confrontation because then Sigourney Weaver's character <laughs> in her air cast comes waltzing in like Cruella Deville, basically, and it's like, <laughs> "Get this girl out of here! She stole my idea," you know, and and all of Tess's earnestness just doesn't. You know, I, as as I was joking with you, in in, in my my worldview, uh, Catherine goes on to be the big guy in Paul who's out to kill the alien. Paul. Yes, <laughs> because exactly. she gets kicked out of the job, <laughs> she so she needs to find work. And, so yes, you, you know, I do. So I do understand what you're saying. So I mean, we'll talk about it, but um, I do understand what you're saying because it is like, oh, capitalism wins, and you know, Tess just was. She she was talented enough. She made it made it work. And is that the reality? But I also think sometimes, especially for U.S. audiences, these like deeper conversations around class and well, race. We'll talk about it. There's it's not very yeah. It's a very well, white, white, white New York City. 
very white city um, in the 1980s. <laughs> but in, in, no immigrants, no African Americans, no Latinxes, nothing. Yeah, nothing. Uh, but I think, in the sense of the comedy, was is bringing up some important issues. Yeah. And the reality is, like, it should have ended with her. She would have, in the real world. People would have believed Catherine and she would have just been kicked to the curb to find another job. Just like Mm. Pretty Woman, right? Like, he would have just kicked her to the curb and and moved on. But, because it's U.S., it has to end. Has to end happy. And I guess we said this in the context of the last two weekends we went to see Tar. Yes. Which also had sort of a toxic, successful female. Right. And we watched Triangle of Sadness, which is an amazing take on class in the 21st century. Yes. And the world of the super wealthy and the world of everybody else. Right. And when the tables get turned, how both of the, both Tar, in a way, both Tar and Triangle Sadness have a female character that once they get in a position of power, they basically act like a European white man. Right. <laughs> and, and, and use the same logic yeah. of power and exploitation to get what they want. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. And I think I. Which I think for me is like, there's that, the farcicalist, that last scene where the secretary is then very contrite and probably worried that this, you know, Tess is just going to go and treats her with dignity and respect and kindness. Yeah. And, you know, says, you know, call me, call me Tess. Don't get me coffee unless you're getting coffee for yourself. Yeah. And. Let's make up the rest as we go along. Let's make up the rest as we go along is... To me, it's like, oh, yeah, actually, wouldn't it be cool if people who become successful remember what it's like to not be successful? <laughs> if, <that's, laughs> if it's possible to not be successful and then become successful, to still remember what it's like <laughs> to not be successful and treat the people around you that now work for you with kindness, dignity, and respect would be so amazing (laughs) if the world worked that way. Um, No, no. Yeah, I was thinking about um, um, my, one of the, when I was a school leader, there was a a maintenance man who I just adored, and I remember he, I heard him screaming, and I ran out to check on him, and there was a raccoon, and he was like screaming and, and trying to figure out what to do, and so I rescued him. I opened the door, got him inside. We cl- shut the door, which scared the raccoon. <laughs> and I remember him just saying to me, he's like, most people wouldn't have rescued me, <laughs> which is very sweet. Um, uh, the, there's one other thing I want to mention, which I like, kind of hesitate to mention because uh, I had to read that. I read this book years ago when I was a teacher. Um, our, the whole school that I was working at read it called The Framework for Poverty. And um, framework for understanding poverty. For understanding, yeah, it's right in our bookshelf for understanding poverty. And unfortunately, like in the wrong person's hands, it's going to perpetuate stereotypes. But the goal was to actually like kind of think about how different classes experience the world, right? And so, like, um, for me, kind of being from a more working class neighborhood. Some of it, you know, kind of hit home and made sense. And there was a couple things I was like, that's my family. Yep, that's the things we did. And just kind of looking at how in poverty sometimes you have to make choices. You know, there's that meme or that meme that was going around. Like if you give 
a wealthy person six hundred dollars um they'll invest it if you give it a poor person they'll spend it and someone commenting like well if you if you make minimum wage and you have to pay rent you're going to pay rent yes. you don't have the luxury to do that and so it's just kind of helping understand like yeah like sometimes it's it's hard to break the cycle of generational poverty because there isn't the assets and the resources always to move forward or the knowledge or understanding how to navigate systems right and yes. spaces and so I, I kind of always, you know, which I think uh, honestly, that's the thing I see with my students and even sort of some of our younger yeah. friends when they think about doing something like buying a house, it becomes this like, I don't even know where the paperwork starts. Yeah. Kind of thing. You know, even like I was even thinking about like when I was looking for college, I look at my niece um, now who uh, is a senior, but when she was looking for colleges, she did like a ton of research and she, she, the field that she wanted to go in, she looked at like which universities had the best placement after graduation and all this other stuff. Stuff I would have never, uh, never yeah, thought me neither. about I mean, at the I mean, time. I chose St. Francis because it was away from where people I lived yeah. And they went away, but I had family I liked nearby. And I, I and honestly... That's, that's why I chose a school. I, I went to an upper... I actually started in an upper tier college. Felt class... You, you went to one of the seven sisters. I did, and I felt, I felt class really hard. Um, it was really hard on me, the class differences. And I ended up transferring to St. Francis because I just wanted something kind of small. And comfortable. And comfortable. And, um, but yeah, like I never like thought about those things at all programs i mean like oh like uh, yeah you know. no i mean we i think some very happy accents on my end i didn't yeah. like the communications faculty i decided i wanted to be a writer so i became an english major yeah and i could have been english calm uh, communications are lit and i didn't like I had one of the communications faculty for freshman writing, yeah. and I never wanted to have that person ever again, so I became a literature <laughs> major, and now I'm a literature professor. That's what happened. Who runs a first-year writing program, even though I got a C- yeah. in first-year writing. It worked out, but yeah, I mean, that was a happy accident. That was yeah. a stumble through, Yeah. Uh, you know, even when I graduated, I didn't have plans after graduation. Right. Your sister got me a job. Right. My sister, well, she got both of us jobs, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, even thinking about, like, master, where to get your master's degree, right? Like Or PhD. Or PhD. And, yeah, like, we just didn't know how to navigate those systems. And, and now if we had children, we'd be like, all right, kid. All right, you got to do this, <laughs> this, 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 this is how you do it. Right. And, you know, Call me when I, you're I ready was to buy the a first. House. I mean, an uncle who went through college, but, like, my dad didn't finish college. My mom never even thought about it. Yeah. So my sister didn't go. She could have gone and, and didn't. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I mean, I was an 18-year-old yeah. <laughs> planning the rest of my life or whatever yeah, I mean, and didn't I, have, yeah, and, and I think... You know, and I'll say this, I mean, I also, though, my parents had money so that I could make mistakes yeah, and be bailed out. And, you know, I have friends whose, again, parents are of our generation who didn't get that leg up yeah, or sometimes or whatever, who don't have the bailout opportunities. And so, again, that's class. That's class in America. And, yeah. you know, this movie is... It's nice to believe the fable. Yeah. And and you find yourself endeared to these. I mean, the way that it also well, works. I mean, you're endeared to the Melanie Griffith character. 
you kind of like you know you you have an obvious like who you're rooting for her to end up with yeah you know you don't want to end up with Alec Baldwin yeah um yeah well, enough. Often, sometimes the painful reality that if you want a different life, there are sometimes you have to people you have to leave behind, and like Alec Baldwin was. Yeah, absolutely, them. and you have to leave the neighborhood, and yeah, yeah, which is hard. Absolutely. So, are we ready for the four big questions? Yeah. Uh, first, is a camp retro classic or just an old movie? So for me, it's it's a classic. I really enjoy this film, and we'll come back to it again and again and again. Though it has some faults. Um, I think it's a classic. I'll call it retro. Okay. I think you have to understand. If you want to understand the 80s and what we believed in and what we were worried about in this country, watch Working Girl. And that makes it retro for me. Gotcha. That makes it's sense. a period piece. Yeah. Two, what about, yes, the social political distance? I think we talked about, I made sure we talked about it a lot, a lot, a lot. <laughs> but the other thing we have to mention is, so there is there is the glass ceiling. Yes. There's very much a sense of that. There is this class ceiling. But yeah, as we alluded to earlier, New York City in the 80s was incredibly white. Yeah. <laughs> incredibly yeah. white. I think there's like one or two other secretaries you see in the background who are women of color. Um, I think that's that's it. That's, yeah. that's about it. So that part is really weird. It's also like, so you would say, so Sigourney Weaver's character, which was just so hard for me because I loved her in Alien and Aliens and... Any alien-related film, Ripley is, like, one of the most incredible characters, and Sigourney Weaver did an amazing job. Yeah, and you can't imagine. And Ghostbusters, she was great in. Yeah. You can't imagine her playing this evil character, though she does go on to do it in Paul and uh, and, yeah. and also in uh, Cabin in the Woods. Um, we never saw Avatar, so we don't know what she was like in Avatar. But, uh, so seeing it for the first time, it was like, not Sigourney. Um, but that thought of, like... Feminism was only for women like her at that time. Yes, right? yes. And the so, very the the shortcoming of second wave feminism. And so she she come obviously comes from a wealthy family. She saw when she moves to New York City for this job, she's staying in her parents' obviously very expensive townhome. She went to Wesley. She is uh, has this amazing career that she probably got from family connections. Yeah. And so she's a very, she already came into the situation with a leg up. And belonging. And belonging. And for a film that's about belonging across the classes. Yeah. She already belongs. She already belongs. And is more than willing to punch down and more than willing to gatekeep yeah. and more than willing to not have solidarity with. With other women. Which I guess, you know, it's like, Tar and is Tar the ultimate second wave feminist icon? Right, <laughs> like, no, exactly. like Tar is Tar is the yeah, you know, funeral service for second wave feminism. Yeah, you know, in our intersectional era. Yeah, so I think in terms of class, it does a nice job of addressing. It does a nice job of class, addressing those distinctions, but not with in terms of race. But in yeah. terms of class, it does it does a nice job of it. And it's also interesting, like, it kind of hit me, too, like, all those scenes of just woman, women, like, women, woman after woman after woman in secretarial jobs. Uh, yeah, you know, and the and idea so of gendered labor. Gendered labor. And so they, you'd walk onto floors, and you would just, and there's multiple scenes in the movie where it's just floors of 
women being secretaries, right? And so, like, that reality of the situation, that there was very capable women who were sitting on the main floor making people in the offices look really good, right? So, and that's yes. really what it shows. So, I think in terms of race, it does not. <laughs> it's very... It doesn't, but... Yeah. Yeah. Three, the technical distance... There is email in this movie. There is email. The computers are super old. The computers are super old, though. When we first started working in 1999, the computers are those super old computers. Um, again, for me, it's striking in a weird way to see the Twin Towers. Yes. And the Twin Towers I mean, as an gonna... icon of American promise and strength and freedom. You know, in that, sh- yeah. in those opening and closing shots, yeah, is something. Um, there are no f- effects in this movie, so we don't have to worry about yeah. that. Uh, you also have to mention it was the eighties. The hair, the hair, the hair and the was clothing. very big. The <laughs> hair was very big. The shoulder pads were very pointy. Yeah, and you can't get away from that. No, no, the, the yes, the costuming was very, very, very eighties. Yes. yes. So the last question, question four, will we ever watch it again? Well, I'll I'll watch it again and again and again. <sighs> yeah, I'll yeah. watch it again. And I do think I do think there is for me, I think sometimes those aspirational films are helpful. Um and so Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And so I do think there's a value to aspirational films out there. Well, I think it's also interesting to think it's an aspirational film for you and your sister. Yeah. In our generation, right? I wonder how younger people would perceive. Oh it. no, I agree with you. I yeah. mean, I it feel would probably like feel a very like a very different thing. But for that time and place, that was a you know the, that idea of a film being a place where people can go dream. Yeah, I mean, right down to the Carly Simon song too. Absolutely, which is very kind of elevated and major chords. And so here's like an interesting question, though. I wonder if there is that kind of film out there now for young girls in the past five years. I'm like, we'll have to research it and look it up. But like off the top yeah, of my head. You know, well, you know, I just always, we get so distracted. Well, I get so distracted because, and especially the young people I work with, they watch superhero movies. Well, the superhero other thing is, watch. but a lot of this, a lot of like the things that pop into my head are like, Oh, she was found to be a great singer. Oh, she's an amazing dancer. Oh, those type of movies are yeah. out there. Like, there's movies out there around... About performative talent. talent right? Yeah, and that's the fantasy. But not necessarily, like, a, of being just kind of like a go-getter who's like, I can move my career forward. I don't know if that's out there, right? Yeah. Like, And I think that, for me, is like... You know, like, when I was a teacher and, and working in education... You know, there was a lot of films out there that, that my stu- my female students especially loved. Like, oh, this this is about a girl who dreams to be a dancer and she made it. Cool. Like, it's cool. But, like, what about the girl If you don't like, have essential otherworldly talent. Right. Like, what is your, you? your way to, to move forward? forward? You know? Which, again, I think is the, the way that, you know, 40 years, I'm going to use the Mark Fisher term, 40 years after Reaganomics, 40 years after the slow cancellation of the future. Yeah. I think there is a deep cynicism that does exist in young people. Even as they're working to get degrees, even as they are 
working and their dreams are about how do we fit into the, the new economy. Yeah. It, there is a sense of like, oh, this is what I gotta do. Yeah. Or I, either I'm pretty and I dance, or pretty or athletic, which means there's a golden path for me. Uh-huh. Everything else is sort of like, yeah, this is what I gotta do. Yeah. Well, you know, like I, the one I was thinking that popped in my head was like Devil Wears Prada, which we, I never saw. But I think she gives up her job to be with her boyfriend. So she gives up her career path for her boyfriend. Um, I mean, I think that's a valid point, Matt. I think that's a really valid point. But I also think, um, you know, we, we kind of talk about it of, um, well, you know, you're in your 40s, you worry about these things, but having, like, financial stability and having a career yeah. path and things like that. And as you're right, like, we were able to, we both have had our own offices, right? And we both have, have well, you have an office now, I don't, I work from home, but, um, yeah. you know, we both manage, have managed people and have had leadership roles and have had these, cra- and my, my sister, who loves this movie with me, has a very successful career. She's done really well with her, her career. Um, it's just, yeah, I mean, I think, I hope, I'll Google it later, I hope there's films out there for girls now that is that just like... That is, like, you can... Especially girls of color, like, you can... Go get it and make go, it happen. And make it happen and do this, and I hope that's out there. And I think it's important for things like that to be out there. But, sorry, I got off track. Will I watch this movie again? Yes. And I hope some, like, 10-year-old girl can find her her film that makes her feel this way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll watch it again. I'll watch it again. And again, I think, though, I think for me it would have to be, I'd be, I'd be feeling 80s nostalgia. Mm, gotcha. Like, let's watch a period piece from our youth. And <laughs> nice. The 80s, man. Not the as 80s. good as the 90s. But a pretty good decade. And you want to see that that teased out hair and chunky jewelry and, yes. and shoulder pads. It's yes. the place it's the film to go to. And landline phones. Absolutely. Cool. I think that's it, everyone. That is it. Bye. Bye. Bye.